fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich, and if this is the first time you're joining us, welcome. On this show, I sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, people who are shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before I start every quarter of the year, which we are about to do, I sit down and schedule out all of these episodes for each week. I try my best to sort of fill in gaps in my own knowledge when it comes to what's happening in agriculture and to bring on diverse perspectives to make sure that the episodes don't get to be too repetitive. As much planning as goes into this, I'm still often surprised when I look back at the episodes I've already published to see themes and trends and connections arise that I didn't anticipate, even with all the planning. And that has certainly been the case here lately with a theme that's emerged of agriculture's connection to health and nutrition. Uh, you heard it recently with Jack Bobo in episode 272 and Joanne Zhang in episode 263. And then also, we've been talking about technology and genetics, such as in episode 270 with Vonnie Estes and 272 with Ponzi Travis Favet. Those themes of nutrition and genetics all kind of come together in today's episode with Matt Crisp, CEO and co-founder of Benson Hill. Benson Hill, if you haven't heard of them, they describe themselves as a food tech company unlocking the natural genetic diversity of plants with their cutting-edge food innovation engine. Okay, basically, what does that mean? They're trying to improve plant-based ingredients by attacking really every aspect of the value chain from seed to processing to ingredient sales. Now, before this interview, I actually thought that they were using gene editing to make these crops more nutritious. But in fact, all of their current products, which include soybeans and yellow peas, are conventionally bred. But they say their breeding techniques are informed by artificial intelligence and machine learning. Now, while they do have a gene editing team, they've not yet developed their genetics this way, which allows them to maintain a non-GMO project certification for all of their ingredients. All right, sorry, getting in the weeds here a little bit early, but I think there's some terms here that really need defining to go into this interview thinking about it the right way. Another one is nutrient density. You'll hear Matt say that they're improving the nutrient density of these crops. It's a bit of an ambiguous term. From what I can tell, what they're doing at Benson Hill seems to be focusing on increasing protein while maintaining or even improving the taste and flavor of those ingredients. All that to say, this plant-based movement that we have experienced so far really has been about food companies trying to mimic the flavors and nutrition of the products they're seeking to displace. Matt Crisp's vision at Benson Hill that you're about to hear is that they have the chance to actually surpass those products, both in flavor and nutrition, but they can only do so through better ingredients. And those better ingredients can only come as a result of better genetics and processing, which, of course, is where Benson Hill focuses their efforts. Matt's road into health, nutrition, and agriculture actually came from his early career in venture capital. That may sound weird, but hearing how all those things tie together is how we're going to start today's episode with Benson Hill CEO and co-founder Matt Crisp. I mean, I spent the first part of my career doing venture investing, principally in the life sciences. And what that gave me a lot of exposure to is how technology could advance 
the life sciences category with a, an emphasis on healthcare, human health. And when, um, you know, we evaluated a, a lot of different technologies and over time observed how they were also being applied to areas outside of human health and human healthcare. And what you realize is that in food and agriculture, it's actually kind of pathetic how little is applied, you know, in food and agriculture system innovation. And so I, I grew, um, this is 10 or 12 years ago, fairly passionate about the idea that you could indeed apply a lot of these enabling technologies and other technologies to food and ag. Ended up leaving the venture capital universe initially to join as a, a head of an agricultural biotech division within what was then a portfolio company. And then a couple of years later, co-founded Benson Hill with some scientists uh, uh, right across the way here, actually, at the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, which is the largest not-for-profit plant research science center in the world and, you know, really uh, the anchor of the 39 North Innovation District here in St. Louis. And so that's been a just over a nine-year journey, uh, co-founding Benson Hill in June of 2012. But that was the catalyst is really how can we apply a lot of these tools and tech to indeed embrace that natural genetic diversity. And how did that manifest itself in the beginning? You know, you're starting out limited resources. You can't attack every food that's out there. Where did you narrow your focus and why? Yeah. So when when we founded the company, we were really focused on sustainability traits. And, you know, we worked in a, a range of crops, but looked at, you know, how you could apply genomics and, and data science to advance a photosynthetic efficiency. Over time, about five years ago, we expanded the, the focus of the company to look at nutrition and health and how we could you know, use effectively the same sets of enabling technologies, data science, plant science, to embrace you know, the healthiness of food and ingredients, the nutrition density of food and ingredients, and advance those from the beginning through the, the food system. And then in the last couple of years, you know, or through two, three years, you know, we've actually layered on a lot of business model innovation as well on top of the technological innovation and the science um, that we built as a foundation for the company. So it's been an evolution, uh, one that that really did start, you know, purely on sustainability. We can now say, I think that your know, sustainability undergirds everything that we do. And it's a major emphasis, not just inside of Benson Hill, but many companies in the market as well. So fortunately, we were we were well positioned in that regard. But you know, today, if I had to tell you that you know where the, the direct emphasis is, it's it's really at the food and ingredient level, and we have a tremendous amount of program activity around protein. Yeah, and it definitely a, a hot topic right now, and you know a a great wave to be in the tailwind, I guess, to mix metaphors. But you know, you mentioned nutrient density, and I think probably most listeners have heard about nutrient density. But can you help us sort of? contextualize the problem with nutrient density? Where do we see like, hey, we got a problem here because the foods that we're producing aren't nutrient dense enough. And then we can kind of take things from there. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, you know, question related to this topic, you know, I think what a lot of folks would bring up is food security. We talk about food security and we think about that domestically. We think about that globally. But in reality, we've, we've actually got a remarkably productive food system. I mean, the commodity food system in, in the U.S. in particular as the most productive agricultural economy in the world, you know, has made enormous strides in the past 20, 30, 50 years to create, you know, enough calories to feed the population. 
What we, in doing so, have left behind at a lot of levels is nutrient density. I use today, having become a little bit more educated about this topic, I sometimes contrast you know, food security versus nutrition security, which is the real problem, frankly. And why? Why does this exist? Why is this a problem? Well, it's in part a problem because the sole emphasis for breeding programs to make seed historically in the directive of R&D programs has been indeed to supply more yield, quantity, and quantity, 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 quantity over quality. So if you go back and you look at USDA data, you see that we've been great at increasing yields over time quite well. However, we've been decreasing simultaneously nutrition density and protein to a level that you know has never been lower, to a level that's, I think, capturing a lot of people's attention and making us wonder, my goodness, while we've become really productive, there's been some unintended consequences. And you translate that to health outcomes. And I mean, I think it's appalling, frankly, that we live in the United States of America and tens of millions of people go to bed hungry every night. I think that's absolutely absurd. Simultaneously, as a country, we spend more each year only on diet-related chronic disease, only diet-related chronic disease, than we do on all of the food we eat combined. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And so I think the pendulum has swung a bit too far, maybe a lot too far. And we've got to really be thinking, and I think consumers today are, are and are more educated and thoughtful about this than they ever have been, which, by the way, was accelerated in the COVID timeline, right? But what am I eating? What I am what I eat. What am I putting in my body? Where did it come from? What is the real nutrition profile? What are the side effects of these types of food that I'm eating? And so, you know, our focus was really, again, going back to the beginning, back to the crop, back to the seed, and trying to bring back some of the genetic diversity that we've maybe bred away from over the last decades and, and reintroduced the nutrition profile that enables our food system to embrace you know, some more healthy options and uh, more macronutrition for our society. And, and to make sure I'm fully tracking, the thought process is we have tools today in 2021 that we didn't have before when we maybe had to optimize for yield and, and pest management and agronomic problems. Today, we have new tools so we can maybe keep the optimal yield while also building up this nutrient density and maybe flavor and some of these other qualities. Is that accurate? You nailed it. Yeah. The enabling technologies, namely you know, genotyping, sequencing, you know, machine learning and AI approaches, compute power, the cloud, onboarding here, CRISPR and gene editing. These are all remarkably powerful tools that are synergistic with one another. And you're exactly right, are for the first time in only recent years enabling us the opportunity to not compromise. We've compromised, we've made trade-offs, there's been consequences, and we have to, we must embrace technology and platform approaches, systems approaches to reintroduce that genetic diversity and indeed, I think not just correct, but you know, really enhance the food system and the healthiness of our planet as well as the people. But that'll take time. And I mean, man, for every crop that folks have innovated on and spent R&D dollars on, which you can kind of count them on one hand, really, you know, there's 20 crops that hasn't been innovated on. And that really deserves a lot of this kind of attention and, and R&D dollars. And to your point earlier, the collapsing cost curves of these enabling technologies and the advancement of technology, generally speaking, is now enabling us to do that in a way that's accessible, not just, you know, behind the, the closed doors of the largest three to five 
seed companies in the world, but at companies like Benson Hill and others. And on that last point, so with these technologies becoming more accessible to everyone, not just a handful of companies, how does a company like Benson Hill differentiate yourself when it comes to developing these products? Yeah. So I like to say there's two real areas of innovation, right? We've done, you know, through the incredible efforts of our team and our collaborators and our partners, I think a, a phenomenal job integrating plant science with data science and food science. And, and those three legs of the stool create real synergy. There's not like a, a silver bullet or a magic solution, but each of these areas of expertise and the diversity of thought and science and tech that go into making new and innovative products you know, does indeed create a value, a synergistic, scalable, replicable set of value streams in the products that the platform produces. So I would put that team, our team, up against you know any team insofar as innovation, speed of innovation, you know, quality of innovation, the integrity of the science and the forward thinking approaches that the group is advancing. The other big pillar, though, of innovation that often gets overlooked is the business model, right? I mean, you can have the, the shiniest tool in the toolbox and the best mousetrap or however you want to think about it. But if you don't have a delivery vehicle to get that thing to market, then you're probably going to lose, and I did have a chance, you know, in my background to see where there may be a company or companies that indeed had the best tech or the best intellectual property or the best mousetrap, but they failed on the delivery model. And executing a delivery model is not trivial. In ag and, and food, especially in this value chain, it's, it's not easy. And so we began, you know, a few years ago, innovating the business model to really find a way to reach past the farm gate and serve and link ultimately consumer interests and our customers' interests with farmer interests. And there, there are ways to do that by focusing on quality traits and things like nutrition density, moving product in an identity-preserved fashion through the value chain, and then capturing the real value of those genomics, genetics, innovations, the seed innovation, which is at, might be at the ingredient level, right? It might be at the formulation level. It might be at the fresh food level. And to boot, those markets are exponentially larger than the seed market or the ag inputs market. And so that business model innovation, I think, is a, a really core differentiator for Benson Hill. And combined also with the tech innovation I described, you know, that indeed creates a more whole picture and also, not to overuse this term, but also synergistic value. Okay, yeah. And where have you found that value? You know, it, it seems like to your point, what needs to all be aligned is the new technology, which we've already, you know, is very clear is there, but also the demand to say, if you can figure this problem out, I will gladly pay you for it. And to what you just said, it's probably not the farmer saying, boy, I just would love to grow more nutrient dense crops and I would do it for less money. It's the food companies. But I'm curious of where exactly you're seeing that demand spike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the tailwinds of this plant-based movement are hurricane force. <laughs> the demand side for protein and in particular plant-based protein right now has never been more profound. So that certainly works in our favor. But to your point, it doesn't really mean much if you can't transcend that value chain and create a delivery model. I'll use a specific example, my favorite one and, and a major area focus for our company right now, which is our ultra high protein soy. And this is a, a varieties of soybean that have really, really high levels of protein, so high that we can actually 
get rid of the need for some of the processing that occurs between the farm gate and formulation of alternative plant-based food products. Now, think about that. Okay, if I can get rid of some of the processing by improving the genetics on farm, what can I do? One, I can actually pay the grower more. In an identity preserved, closed loop system, growing our non-GMO products, I can pay the grower more. Second, I can turn around to our customers, let's say it's consumer packaged goods companies, and offer them a discount to what it is that they're currently buying. The ingredient that is popular or ingredients that are popular to make these alternative plant-based meat products. And I can still have a, a really sizable margin opportunity in the middle. And so it's an example of how one or the other wouldn't work. If you just had to your point, I've got a more nutrient-dense seed. Well, a grower is not going to grow it if he or she doesn't have an opportunity to see it through to that end market where it actually is creating the value, right? Simultaneously, I'd never be able to offer something of that type, certainly at no degree of scale, to a customer without having the infrastructure behind it and the delivery model established. And so it's an example of a unique linkage that we're essentially using as a playbook, you know, to continue to innovate products across the chain. And just curious, what is the protein difference in the soy? So you, you might have a, a commodity bean that, you know, produces a protein content in the 34 to 36, 37% range. And then you crush it, you defat it, take the, you know, what's usually around 20% oil out of it. And then you're creating a meal product or a flour product, you know, that might be between 46 and, and 49% protein content. Our ultra high protein beans are 45, 50% protein in the bean itself. And so when you're going through that defatting process, you know, we're seeing protein levels that might be in the 60 to 70% range. And interestingly, importantly, that's really the range of protein density that you would see coming off of a soy protein concentrate, which is effectively a, a soy flour that's gone through an additional very water and energy intensive, very expensive processing step to create a product that might be 60 to 70% protein content. And that's used for the alternative plant-based meat analog markets, right? So by creating something that's indeed better from the beginning and being able to do it at scale with elite genetics, non-GMO, agronomic packages, you know, that enable us to grow these types of beans on hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, so quite scalable in a lot of different maturity groups, you're creating a quote unquote scalable specialty category that disintermediates some really expensive processing and then enables exactly what I described from an economic output perspective to pay the grower more, to charge my customer less. Oh, and by the way, we've done life cycle analyses on it and we're ripping out a massive, massive amount of CO2 emissions and water usage. Yeah, that processing probably is, is intense. What can you build at Benson Hill that allows you to say, okay, we did all this with ultra high protein soybeans. And now we're just going to hop over here to yellow peas. And what's the thread that makes it easier to shift from one problem to another uh, with various ingredients along the food supply chain? Well, the simple way to answer that question, it's a one word answer is data. You know, we're learning so much from beans and the work that we're executing there. It informs predictive models It informs how to optimize work streams. 
And those learnings, you know, are, are in many respects directly applicable to crops like yellow pea or other legumes for that matter. While the genomes may be very different, the complexities agronomically may be quite different, there are a lot of similarities as well. And we have actually and are actually applying learnings, you know, on a crop to crop basis. So it's not a turn this off and turn that on as much as it's let's iterate and learn and and continue to develop approaches that advance, you know, our goals with multiple product outcomes and opportunities. But I'm very bullish on, you know, yellow pea as a crop generally and other crops, you know, longer term for Benson Hill that I think become on a relative basis, easier, right, to innovate to the extent that, you know, we're indeed accelerating the efficiency and the productivity that our platform Crop OS can supply. Yeah. And talk about that Crop OS platform for somebody who's never heard of it. What exactly is that? Sure, sure. So Crop OS is short for Crop Operating System, and it is a data-driven, data-centric platform that assimilates outputs from various components of those three areas I mentioned and others, data science, food science, and plant science, that might come from genomic, proteomic, metabolomic profiling that might look at the secondary metabolite reactions in different environmental conditions. And we collect data very actively from, from growers on the field, you know, around how different environmental conditions, weather, soil, microbial environments are impacting outputs on not just yield and and agronomic package, but also quality traits like protein. And then ultimately, and interestingly, you know, we also look at how the stuff comes out into the ingredient, right? When you process it and you formulate it, how do you link the genetics, the genomics of the plant to the texturization properties to how does it emulsify? How does it hold water? You know, what there's a lot of very, very important attributes that come from our food science organization that very much help inform the breeding operation. Crop OS just sits at the center of that, really. And if you can think about, you know, an octopus with all the arms and all the work streams and workflows, it is indeed putting these data into more actionable outcomes. And then it helps also enable our scientists, our breeders, our technicians with the work streams themselves. So, you know, within Crop OS, we use something we call Breed, which, you know, helps enable predictive breeding and it provides a user interface and folks can engage with that. Edit, which is, you know, for genome editing. And, you know, we can conduct in silico predictive analyses on gene editing experimentation. These are really, really enabling, frankly, you know, to a group of, of super talented scientists and, and technicians and others to expedite, help expedite, accelerate their respective work streams and and ultimately the product development process. Very cool. Well, if I'm a a Beyond Meat or an Oatly, I want to have the most nutritious food in my category out there. Could I partner with Benson Hill and we create the, uh, you know, Oatly exclusive oat that is higher in protein, but same in calories as every other product on the market. Is that how it works? Or is it like, hey, you know, uh, I need to tell Benson Hill that I'm interested and they'll kind of create it and I'll be one of their customers. You know, how does that work? Or is it a mixed bag? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's all the above, really. I like to say that we, through this business model innovation I described, have, have taken the bull by the horn, so to say, and have actually moved product, are moving product through the value chain and delivering you know, ingredient solutions to customers today. 
However, uh, to your point earlier, and this is a beautiful part of being an integrated company, frankly, is we hear from the companies like the ones you just described. And they ask, well, what's, what's coming? What's next? What are you doing in this crop? Have you ever thought about that crop? And it becomes a conversation because I think we're, we're not just a science company behind closed doors, four steps away in the value chain that might have some, you know, cool tech to apply to, to something that shuttles its way through the chain and then ultimately sold to these customers. They understand that they've got a direct link to us and we're listening and we're engaged and we're very eager to help you know, see around the corner with them what the needs of the market are, what their specific needs are, which are sometimes unique to their companies, their branding strategies, their uh, product formulations. That's important. That's really important. And these types of organizations, like the ones you mentioned and others, are thinking innovatively, differently, creatively around how they can create and sustain a competitive advantage relative to their peers. And it must, it absolutely must, include ingredient innovation. It, it must. I'd use, uh, you know, the plant-based, the burger market as an example. We find it difficult to see a path where you're going to see not just meeting cost parity, but beating cost of meat with these types of products without ingredient innovation. And in order to really execute that, it's not about throwing more dollars at processing. You've got to pull dollars out of processing. You've got to go back to the beginning. You've got to produce more of what you want from the start. And that really does start with the seed and the farmer and what goes in the ground. And so I'm going on about it, but I'll say that those conversations have been a lot of fun. We're learning, but at the same time, we're not taking our eye off of the ball, uh, which right now is to execute and to deliver and to engage with the market, to gain the market's trust and indeed link the farmer uh, with you know, the ultimate consumer. And how has that farmer piece gone? Now, I mean, talk to us about building a grower network. So, I mean, you've done very hard work of developing, you know, the right genetics, and now you got to get it out there and get it grown and processed. So what does that look like to make that happen? Right. Well, you nailed that. I mean, you start with the grower. I mean, you've got to work with the farmers to, you know, meet their needs, to gain their trust, to help them understand the revenue model and the value share, where the product goes, why, and then, and, and really only then, can you begin to gain your productivity share, production supply. And so we just launched and announced it yesterday, actually, a, a food systems innovator program. And it's around uh, farmer engagement, specifically very progressive, innovative, forward-thinking farmers who are helping us shape the programs and the outcomes and collect the data that inform these newer next generations of product development. And again, it's really, I think, only through these kinds of engagements that we will be able to gain the acreage over time to supply these rapidly growing end markets. I mean, we went from 30,000 acres of proprietary soybeans last year to 70,000 this year, which is 130 some percent increase. Our goal was to double, by the way, right? We more than doubled. That informs the production and the supply that will constitute our, uh, a lot of our ingredients revenue in 2022, but it starts with the farmer. And that's really the backbone of the system and, you know, a stakeholder that must be engaged in order to help us advance the cause here. Well, 
soy processing capability is in pretty tight hands. It's a pretty consolidated industry. And part of your business model is maybe taking a little bit of margin away from those players. So is that a delicate conversation to get the processing potential for this? <laughs> That's a good way to put it, delicate. You have to think about it in the context of scale. So if you think we're producing 80 some million acres of soybeans in the United States, and to your point, the vast majority of that from a processing crush perspective is in a very few number of hands. However, when I think about 70,000 acres of Benson Hill soy, I sometimes joke, you know, a thousand acres of beans makes a lot of hamburger. And I don't necessarily, we don't necessarily need millions and millions of acres in order to meet what is the current and near future market demands, right? So it's not as though we need to go and take away share or any kind of, you know, frankly, material volume from the organizations that do indeed crush and process the vast majority of these beans. We can achieve a lot of our goals on a smaller scale with, you know, I mean, to be honest, slightly less efficient assets because, you know, again, you're taking so much cost out of the equation that the most important thing for us and our customers, frankly, is to maintain and completely ensure the integrity of the product. And oftentimes that's better suited for smaller scale facilities. And we've been really fortunate to, to partner with and collaborate with folks like Rose Acres, as an example, in, in Indiana. We announced that late last year, which has one of the smallest soy crush facilities in the United States. But it's very well suited as a solution for us to engage and, and collaborate with, you know, because from a needs perspective, you know, we, we can do a great deal there. And we've got a really engaged community around that plan. And so... It's one example of others that, you know, I think help illustrate that there's a path and fast forward five years plus from now, will it make sense to engage larger organizations? Absolutely. It's definitely part of the plan, but we really do feel strongly that we've got to engage with the end markets. We've got to earn that trust. We've got to engage the stakeholders in order to really lift off you know, what is a really exciting set of ingredient solutions. I really appreciate that context because, yeah, I mean, putting it in that scale and, and that could be applied to all of sort of, you know, new foods, I guess, is there could be some really, really big businesses built without full disruption of the food system, right? I mean, we're talking a massive scale that that may not even notice when very large businesses are built in a similar space. And I, I think about, uh, you know, yellow peas. I know you said you're very bullish on that crop, as am I. And I know one of the challenges there is, my understanding is the fractionation all happens in Asia. So you, you kind of grow them here and you get them over at Asia and you get them back. But did I understand right, at least with soybeans, that could you skip that fractionation step or do we kind of need more processing capability built here in the U.S. to try to develop that market or maybe both? Mm -hmm. Well, I think insofar as yellow pea, I think you, you need more processing capacity domestically, period. When you say fractionation, there's really two principal mechanisms through which yellow peas are processed. You've got a dry fractionation where you're essentially, you know, using air clarifiers and you're, you're fractionating it without introducing a tremendous amount of water and energy. And then you've got a wet fractionation, which is very, very, very intensive processing but that processing is able to concentrate protein to a much, much higher level, and it's able to get rid of some of the off-putting flavors and baggage that come along with the native yellow pea. What we would envision is that you can, you know, this is another example, have your cake and eat it too, right? 
why don't we use dry fractionation, but get the crop in the ground that's going to grow something that doesn't require the intensity that a wet frac process does. So what do you need to do? You need to solve for protein, protein density, you know, think the equivalent of the ultra high protein soybean as an ultra high protein yellow pea. And then you need to address some of these off-putting flavors that come across, but, you know, are, are semi cleaned up, you know, through a, a pea protein isolate process, pea protein isolate being the output of the wet fractionation process. If we can address those challenges, I think there's a huge unlock. And, and this is exactly the, the focus of our yellow pea program is to look at these two areas of innovation and need, and ultimately to get to a similar point where we're disintermediating you know, some of this more environmentally unsustainable and frankly, extremely expensive processing that's currently required. And by the way, Tim, you, you mentioned something I thought was interesting when you're kind of talking about like disruption. And this is something, if I may, disruption's a very, very overused term, right? I mean, people like to say, well, I'm going to disrupt this and disrupt that and and tear the whole system down and rebuild it. And I, I frankly think that's somewhat foolish. You know, our system is really efficient. I mean, we should be proud in some ways of the system we've built. There have been negative consequences of that, as we discussed, right? But it doesn't mean that you need to go in and tear the whole thing down and rebuild it. You've got to be smart about how we're using its strengths to evolve the food system, right? To improve on the infrastructure, the capabilities, the capacity that we have, the learnings that we've banked, and advance it in a way that's more aligned with consumer benefit and society and our planet. So, you know, again, I, I do appreciate that a lot of what I'm saying is in contrast to where really big companies have vested interests. But, you know, our hope, of course, is that this doesn't in five years or 10 years look like a quote unquote specialty or niche. It looks like, you know, indeed a very much scalable new food system. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Absolutely. Whenever anyone seems to imply a full teardown of the food system, uh, do, do you know what you just said? <laughs> do, you, do you understand what, what, what you just said? Um, so absolutely. All right. Well, I, I know we're running short on time and, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the SPAC merger. It'd be a stretch for me to say I fully understand SPACs, but I will say this. I understand that it is a, a big win for your investors. I understand that it represents an influx in capital. What I'm curious about is for you as an operating team, what does that change and what does it mean for Benson Hill going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. So, and, and you understand too, I mean, you know, SPAC IPO has been popularized really in the last year. We began discussing the opportunity to take the company public a couple of years ago, and in fact, had done a lot of preparatory work. So when this posed itself as an opportunity, you know, it was something we, we evaluated really seriously and ultimately decided to lean into. It is indeed, you know, to form additional capital and, and to have a lower cost of capital to scale the business. But what I would tell you, and I shared in our all company discussion a couple months ago when we announced the deal is that this is a financing event, right? This is another milestone in time where we're, yes, we're getting new investors and yes, we'll have some investor turnover, but 
our business strategy isn't changing. Our business plans aren't changing. Our roles aren't changing. We're just getting more fuel to back what it is that we've got a lot of passion and commitment around. And I'd say that passion and commitment doesn't, of course, just extend inside of the walls of Benson Hill and, and, and our team, but indeed the shareholders we have today. Every single one, very proud to say, of our institutional shareholder base is rolling 100% of their stake into the public company. And in fact, we've had many of them want to put more capital to work, for instance, and in, in the pipe that we've raised, we actually upsized uh, pretty significantly above the initial target because there's a degree of interest. And they believe, as we do too, that you know we're in the early innings of what's to be a great journey and one that you know has a huge amount of impact, but also can deliver you know good shareholder returns. So we'll we'll look in the next uh, you know, weeks and months to close indeed this the SPAC IPO and shift the ticker from STPC, which is what it is today, over to BHIL for Benson Hill, and we'll celebrate that too. But indeed, only as a milestone a stop on the journey. Well, as of the time of this recording, BHIL is not yet trading, but there are a couple of other updates from after that interview with Matt, which I conducted back in early August. First, that little soybean crushing facility he mentioned that was owned by Roseacre Farms. Well, Benson Hill announced September 13th that they're actually buying it. So they are now officially in the soy processing business. Also, Benson Hill announced a partnership with Arizona-based CropTrack on the 1st of September, which will help to support their CropOS platform to track agronomic information and validate ESG metrics. You learned all about ESG last week, another connection. You can learn more about them at BensonHill.com. And thank you very much, Matt, for being on today's show. And I'll tell you, Matt's PR team has certainly been busy because he's appeared on at least two other ag tech podcasts since our interview. If you'd like to hear more from Matt, go listen to recent episodes of Ag Tech So What and The Modern Acre, both of which did a great job, I thought, in telling the Benson Hill story. If you're an Ag Tech So What listener, which I hope you are, you may have noticed that the flow of Sarah's questioning in her interview with Matt was actually quite similar to mine, which I'm going to take as a huge compliment because Sarah Nolet is brilliant. Both podcasts, though, do a great job, so subscribe to them if you're not already. That's Ag Tech So What and The Modern Acre. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag Innovation.